Welcome everybody to New Philly. My name is Susie. I'm one of the pastors here in our community. And I'm so excited to see so many new faces. Summer is like such a special time for all of us. We have so many visitors coming through. We have a ton of people emptying out and we have a ton of people kind of moving in. And so it's such a good time to get to meet new people. If you're new to our community, welcome. We hope that you feel like you've stepped into your home. You don't feel like a stranger. You don't feel like you're starting everything again. But the presence of God and God's people uh, welcomes you in as if this was your home. So thank you so much for joining us today. Um, today, I'm going to be preaching from the second chapter of Mark. Last week, Pastor David Ha, he started us off in a sermon series on the book of Mark. And also today, Shilim, our Shilim community is joining us. So thank you so much for joining us, Shilim. Behave while uh, Pastor Billy is in the States. <laughs> don't, uh, don't do anything wild. Um, so thank you for joining us. Um, I'm really excited to preach on this particular book. Um, I've been kind of itching to get into the Gospels for a long time. And something that the Gospels does to us as we are simply confronted by the life of Jesus Christ is it begins to confront the ways that we see him, the way that we um, take certain things for granted, certain misconceptions that we might have had as well. And so it's going to be a really fruitful time of us going through the scripture. It's going to be a little bit quick paced. So if you could be a little bit patient with me today, I'd really appreciate that. So last week, Pastor David, he preached on the beginning, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this week, we're going to be talking about the invitation that is found in this gospel. Now, our main passage for today is from Mark too, but let's backtrack a little to refresh our memory first. So John the Baptist, he was preaching on the coming of the kingdom. And then in verse 14, Mark casually drops this into conversation. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. So after John was arrested, this is Jesus's cousin. This is the guy who was, you know, who baptized him. This is the guy who uh, was out in the wilderness preaching about the very same kingdom, the very same kingdom. And this guy ends up in jail. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if it were me and my cousin was preaching the very same message was arrested, I'd feel like this is my time to lay low, like lay low just for a bit, let things cool down. Like, I don't want to attract anybody's attention. Um, even though if it, w- it wasn't exactly because he was preaching this message, he got arrested. But if I saw this happening, that would not be the time where I would think, you know what? This is a perfect time for me to launch my public ministry. That is not what I would think. I would think, okay, I'm going to be, you know, under the grid, like out of the radar, and I'm going to kind of lay low for a bit. But instead of doing that, Jesus Christ chooses this time this moment in time to launch into his public ministry. We're talking about proclaiming the gospel of God. And Pastor David talked last week about what the gospel means. The gospel is evangelion or the good news. And he explained that the gospel, this word in particular, is not a Christian word per se. The gospel is a secular word. And that was used particularly in the case of pronouncements made by an authority figure. So imagine with me, you know, you've seen the movies of, of old like England, old England, I guess. And you see this guy like coming up in a, in a horse and he goes, hear ye, hear ye by the royal highness, blah, blah, blah. So it's the same thing. That, that is a herald. That is a herald. Or in other words, an evangelist. That is what a herald is. So in that, that same way, he is 
preaching good news. It's just a different kind of good news. So good news or the gospel is actually a secular word. In fact, this is what uh, Tim Keller in his book, Jesus the King, this is what he says. This is an example of the gospel. When Greece was invaded by Persia and the Greeks won the great battles of Marathon and Solnus, they sent heralds or evangelists who proclaimed the good news to the cities. We have fought for you. We have won. And now you're no longer slaves. You are free. A gospel is an announcement of something that has happened in history, something that's been done for you that changes your status forever. That is what the gospel is. Now, Pastor David also mentioned that Christianity is the only religion that doesn't just give us advice, like what to do in order to get right with God. It actually gives us news, almost like a CN, like a CNN kind of like, like news. That's that's what it means. News that just happens to be very good news. And that's Christianity, something that has been done already on your behalf, something verifiable, something historically accurate, something revolutionary where the main actor and initiator wasn't man but it was God himself working in history. And so now we're going to go back to the verses in Mark where Jesus launches into his public ministry saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now from this point on in our minds, what we think is happening is like, okay, he's got his cause. Like he's got his motto. And now I'm going to recruit my campaign team. Right. One by one, I'm going to recruit like my my gang, my my posse, my, you know, like the people are going to roll with me with this message. And that's the way we tend to think about what happens from here on out. But let me challenge that notion. With like with this is this suggestion, and that is that Jesus is not recruiting like his team for his presidential campaign here on out. He actually launches into illustrating and acting out the very tenets of this gospel. He went straight to the underqualified, the overlooked, the underestimated, and he calls them to himself. And that's what's happening from here on out. It says, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. So he goes to the underqualified. He preaches this message and he gives this invitation. Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Now, this is really revolutionary, especially if you were in the Jewish tradition of old. The tradition was that the pupil gets to pick their rabbi. It's like you get to pick who you get to follow. That's why it makes sense when in the Pauline epistles, Paul says, some of you say like, oh, I follow Apollos. Others of of you say, oh, I follow Paul. They're basically identifying themselves with a rabbi. They're saying like, I am a disciple of so-and-so. And so that was the tradition. You get to pick your teacher. You get to pick your rabbi. And Jesus Christ, as soon as he launches into his public ministry, he flips the script And all of a sudden, the rabbi chooses the pupil. The rabbi chooses his followers. Isn't this a beautiful picture already of the gospel? God initiates. He is the one who calls. He is the one who favors. He's the one that extends his hand of mercy and favor upon our lives, even before we understand our need of him. The Bible says that while we were yet in our sin, 
We were, and while we were still dead in our transgressions, Christ died for us. And even before he died for us, this is the way that he calls us each by name. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now, their response, it says, and they immediately left their nets and followed him. This is such a gracious response. I don't know about you guys, but some random guy that I didn't know came to me and they're like, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I'd be like who are you? (laughs) Like, what, why, why would I, why would I even do that? Uh, But something about Jesus, there's something about him, right? Maybe something in the way that he carried himself, maybe something in the tone of his voice. Maybe there was something in the authority that he carried. Something about him made them drop everything that they were doing. Literally like that moment They didn't think about it or pray about it for like a few weeks. They actually just dropped their nets in that moment and immediately left their nets and followed him. And this happens again. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were on their boat mending their nets. Now, something that I didn't pick up the first time I read this was that, oh, this is just a repetition of what just happened. It's like just another fisherman down the the line. But what is different about this is that uh, James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, they were mending their nets. And when he called them, they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Now, if you have hired servants on your boat, we're not talking about a little rowboat here. We're talking about a fishing enterprise. Like you've got, like you've got, uh, whatchamacallit, uh, um, staff, um, employees, employees, you got employees working for you. So business is good. We're not talking about like my, me and my little robo just catching a fish or two. This is a business. They're running a business with their dad and hired servants. And this is what, what they decide to step away from as soon as Jesus calls out to them and says to follow him. So it means that it has nothing to do with the circumstance that you're leaving. Some of us are like, well, it was easy for Simon. Like he didn't have much going for him. You know, like, well, I'm not going to give a fish, you know, like it's not a big deal. Like, no, when business is good or when things are hard, it doesn't matter. When Jesus calls you to follow, you leave whatever it is that you are involved in and you follow him. Now, until now, everything's still pretty mysterious. Like he says, follow me, but we have no idea what they're following him into. There's still a mystery, right? What is he calling them into? What kind of mission is he inviting them into? And so now we're about to find out. And they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority and not as one of the scribes. Now, if this sounds like a bit of a diss towards the scribes, it is a diss (laughs) to the scribes, right? He was preaching as someone who had authority unlike the scribes, meaning the scribes didn't have this kind of authority. Now, this is the first time that Mark uses this word authority. And it doesn't mean like if I preach with authority, I use a certain tone and I come off as very authoritative or confident, or I use a lot of hand gestures and I look very authoritative. This is not what it's talking about. When Mark is talking about authority, the word authority has the same root as author, author. We're talking about someone who is coming out of the same as the original. The same as the original. And this is how Tim Keller says it. He didn't just clarify something that they already knew 
or simply interpret the scriptures in a way that in, in the way that the teachers of the law did, his listeners sensed somehow that he was explaining the history of their lives as the author, and it left them dumbfounded. Someone who speaks with a kind of authority, not like, oh, I heard so-and-so say, or let me take something and try to interpret it for you in a way that impresses you. He's speaking as the very person who wrote those scriptures that he's expounding. He is the author of those scriptures, and he's the author of their very lives. So the kind of authority that he carries is because he himself is the author. And almost as if to prove that point, almost as if to prove that he's not just a suave talker, like he, he has like, you know, PowerPoints and like he, you know, he can impress people with a presentation, almost as if to prove that he was more than just talk. Immediately in the synagogue was a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out, what have you done? Uh, What have you to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Let's take a second just to wrap our minds around how intense and how crazy this is. Can you imagine, like you're just having a service and somebody with an unclean spirit, so something, somebody who's oppressed by the devil, basically, speaks out in the middle of a sermon and says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That is a big deal. That is a big deal. All throughout the book of Mark, there's one resounding question throughout the entire book. And that is this. It is the question of Jesus asking, who do you say that I am? Throughout the entire book, who do you say that I am? This happened. I went here. This happened. This happened. This person got healed. This got multiplied. This got calmed. Like all these things happen. Who do you say that I am? That's the underlining question that goes all throughout the book of Mark. In this short eight that 16 chapter book, you hear the father himself, God, the father has a voice coming down from heaven twice. You hear him speak out from the heavens twice saying, this is my beloved son. So you got endorsement from heaven, like a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son twice, once at his baptism and once at the Mount of transfiguration. Not only that, you hear demons proclaiming his lordship twice as well. They say, he is the Holy One of God. What have you to do with us? But throughout this book, the only people that are scratching their heads, like, who, who is this guy? Are the disciples, actually, all throughout this book. So you get endorsement from heaven. You even get endorsed by demons. Like, you must be pretty legit to get endorsed by demons. But all throughout, all the, uh, the happenings that were, uh, all the things that were happening through the book of Mark, Everything is trumpeting his lordship, even the voice from heaven, even the demons that are coming out from people who are tormented. They're proclaiming his lordship. And all throughout the book, this is the question that God asks us. Who do you say that I am? Am I just a rabbi? Am I just, you know, a really like cool person who just draws crowds and heals people? Am I just somebody who says good sayings? Or am I truly the son of God? Am I truly the king? So God the father acknowledges him. Demons obey him and tremble in his presence. Sickness bows at his name. Food multiplies. Nature and storms, they obey him. Even death submits to his power. And all the while, the disciples are saying, 
who is this man? Something different about you. That's like the understatement of the century, right? That is what they're, they're going through. They're going through this wrestling of like, who is this guy? Now we're going to jump into chapter two. This is where Jesus begins to answer this question. Who do you say that I am? And so it says, when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And as he was preaching the word, uh, he was preaching the word to them and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Once again, just picture how crazy this is. Can you imagine like on a service that is so jam packed here, like people are even like sitting on stage and like people are out the stairwell and there's no way to get into the elevator and the whole back and the loft and the baby room, they're all taken up and it's really, really crowded. Like it's like line number two during rush hour. Right? Like you can barely move. You're getting shoved aside by people. In the midst of that, imagine you hear like a drilling sound from the sixth floor. And you're like, what in the world? You see like kind of like dust coming down. We're like, what is happening? And then there's an opening. And then like a paralytic man is like, can you imagine how crazy that is? So this is basically what happened. They tore open the roof in order to get this paralytic man before Jesus. This is the kind of desperation we're seeing. The desperation, not only of the man, but also on the man who convinces friends to do that, right? So the man and his friends. This is someone who will go to great lengths to get healed. He's not just going the conventional way of like, I hope he gets to pray for me if I stand here in line. Like he's like, forget the line. I'm going to drill a hole to the sixth floor and come like my, my friends will kind of hopefully safely kind of lower me to where Jesus is. This is someone who will go to great lengths to get healed. And then this is Jesus's response. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, in case you didn't pick it up, this is not what the paralytic probably wanted, right? He was like, that's great, but, uh, you know, <laughs> like there's something, you know, else that you could do for me. There's something a little bit more urgent, something that caused me to break in through your, you know, your roof. It wasn't, I'm not here to have you forgive my sins. I actually have, you know, I'm paralyzed. I would kind of really like to walk if that's okay with you. Um, But Jesus is doing something really profound and really intentional in this moment. Before even addressing the condition of his body, he's addressing the condition of his soul. Jesus is not blind to the fact that he's paralytic. He's not blind to the fact that he really needs physical healing. But in that moment, he chooses to sidestep that need in order to address an even deeper need. And that is the need of his soul. He's saying, your problem is not your suffering. Your problem is not the fact that you can't walk. Your, the problem is not that you can't walk around and just have a normal job and like that you, you know, that you can go about life without friends having to, to carry you around in your mat. That's not your problem. Your deeper problem is actually not your suffering, but your sin. And that is what he goes straight for. Now, this should resonate a little bit with us. Because there's things in our lives that we want desperately. 
Like, it doesn't need to be, like, super, like, unspiritual, or it can be spiritual. It doesn't really matter. But there's certain things in our lives that we think to ourselves, like, man, if only this happened, I think I would be happy. Like, if only my job situation got better, or if only my family thing kind of worked out, or if only my relationship thing worked out, if only, there's, there's always something that we are desiring, something that we cling on to as our ultimate hope, something that seems like it'll fix our lives. If only this could happen, everything would be okay. My life would be perfect. I would be happy. But Jesus, in this story, he shows us that, man, even if he had healed him in that moment and just left it at that, he would be happy probably like for a month, maybe two, three tops, you know? And before that, uh, before he even understood, like he would go back to feeling like his soul is in need of something else. He would go right back to where he was. His condition would be different, but his soul would be in the same place. So Jesus, in his mercy, in his, in his kindness, he doesn't just address what the body needs, what our finances need, what our health needs, what our families need, what my job and my career need. He goes even further than that. And he addresses the need of the soul. Now, what happens as a response is some of the scribes that were sitting there, they question their hearts. So they're not even saying this out loud. They're just thinking to themselves. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? He's basically saying, like, who are you to forgive on behalf of God? Like, you're putting yourself in God's place because only God can forgive his sins. And by you saying, I forgive you, you're saying like, oh, so you think you're God. And that's what they're thinking. And immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. So he's proving both that he can say to the body, be healed, that he can say to the soul, you're forgiven. He's saying, I'm Lord over the sickness of your body. And I'm Lord over the sickness of your soul. I have power not only to affect your few brief years here on earth. I have the power to affect your eternal destiny. Now this word authority came up for a second time. It is a power to influence or command thought, opinion, or behavior. It is a person in command or it is grounds or warrant or out of the original stuff like we talked about before. But I want to focus on grounds and warrant. What is he saying here? He's saying so that you know that the son of man has grounds to forgive people of their sins. So that you know that I have warrant to forgive your sins. He says, rise up, pick up your bed and go home. And then as a response, the impossible happens. He rose up and immediately picked up his bed and went up before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. We never saw anything like this. We thought that you could heal maybe a few people. We thought that maybe you could do a few things and keep us entertained. But this is something else. This is of a different order. This is someone who 
can raise the lame, and he can also forgive people's sins. Now, we're going to continue on. We're moving pretty quickly. There's one more instance of Jesus calling sinners to himself that we'll talk about today. It says, he went up uh, again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, this is not just any guy. Tax collectors, as you might have heard, they are at the bottom of the food chain. Like they are the scum of the scum, like in this society. When Romans would kind of take over a society or a civilization, they wouldn't just enforce themselves militarily on a particular society, what they would do is they would hire somebody from the inside to collect taxes on their behalf. So this is already a traitor to his nation, a traitor to his nation. He's working on behalf of people who are oppressing him, people who conquered them. He, this is a traitor. And not only that, the only way that tax collectors would make money is that they would charge extra for taxes. So if the Roman government would say, like, okay, we just need this much money, go collect it for us from your very own people. But if you want to make a little extra buck or two, like, you can charge a little bit more, and we won't really care as long as we get, you know, our, our dividends. And so tax collectors would add an extra charge to their very own people in order to make a profit. So we're not just talking about a trader to the nation. We're also talking about a swindler. Somebody who robs people in order to get personal gain. And this is a tax collector that was sitting in his booth doing something that people consider despicable. Like in his booth, doing his job. And Jesus looked at him when he was sitting there doing what was despicable, cowardly, dishonest. And in that moment, he called him to himself right there and then. He didn't wait for him to fix his life didn't wait for him to turn around from collecting taxes. He looked at him when he was still in his tax booth and he asked him to follow him. And he did. And later on, we see that it wasn't just him that Jesus drew to himself that day. It was other sinners, perhaps people that Levi knew, people that he associated himself with, or maybe people who are bystanders. And they're saying like, whoa, if he makes the cut, then I'm in, like I want in. And so we see that um, as he reclined at the table in his house, this is Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? He's saying, like, how can he, as a rabbi and as a good Jew, associate himself with people that you shouldn't be associated with? You, sh- you don't want to be connected to these people. You don't want to be seen in public with these people. How can he associate himself with sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, this is what Jesus isn't saying. Jesus isn't saying they're sick and you're not. That's why I need to eat with them. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying they're sick 
and so are you. You should be eating with me as well. He's not saying they're sick and you're healthy. He's saying they're sick, you're sick too. If only you could see your condition, you would know that you need the help of the physician. He's not exonerating people who are righteous or self-righteous. He's giving them an invitation. He's calling them to himself as well. He's saying we're all lost. We're all sinners. We're all undeserving of this invitation into grace and fellowship. We're all sick. We all need the physician. And this is something that challenges the way that we see ourselves. Because often, more often than not, we don't see ourselves as really terrible people. We see ourselves as pretty decent at least compared to my neighbor or my friend or my cousin, right? Like we kind of measure ourselves according to human standards. And we say like, okay, I, I might be, maybe I might have done a few things, you know, here and there or like certain things in my past, but like, I'm not like so unrighteous or I'm not such a great sinner that I'm lumped in with them, right? Like I am at least a little bit righteous, just a little bit. Not super righteous, but a lit, at least a little righteous, no? Like, I, I'm, I'm at least there. If you're thinking that to yourself, this is what Romans 3 says. Not one is righteous. Not one. Not even the best of y'all, right? Not one is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one makes it very clear. It draws that line in a very clear place. All of us are on the side of sinners. All of us are on the side of deserving grace. All of us are unrighteous. And there's only one source of righteousness. And that is the righteousness that is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. All of us. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. There's no difference between teacher and club owner or, you know, like no difference between a taxpaying good citizen and, you know, someone who's in the underground doing sketchy stuff. Like there's no difference. We're all sinners. We're all needing Christ's righteousness, and it's only found in one source, only found in faith in Jesus Christ. It only requires faith for those who believe. So this is the invitation for us today, the same invitation that was given to the lame man. It is invitation into forgiveness for the guilty. We have all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We are all in need of forgiveness. And that is the hope that we see here today. The same invitation that was given to the lame man is available for us today. Forgiveness for the guilty. The same one that was given to the demonized man, the one who was tormented by unclean spirits. It is the invitation into rest. The invitation into rest from striving, from struggling, from trying to find our own way and trying to earn our own salvation. It is invitation into rest. And it is the same as that for the tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners that were sitting around his table. It is an invitation into belonging for the lost. We're invited home. We're invited home to the father. 
And lastly, it is the invitation that was given to the Pharisees and the scribes. That is an invitation into awe for the religious. It's an invitation for us to say we never saw anything like this. We've never encountered a God like this. We've never seen anybody as compassionate, as righteous, as blameless, as just, as sacrificial. We have never seen anybody like this. There is no God like this God. And that's invitation that God gives us today. There's nothing that can fight legalism and religion as much as awe. Awe does. Like a sense of awe, a sense of not of like, I've seen this, I've done that, I've heard this in Sunday school, I've lived this my entire life. Like I've, I know exactly what this book says and there's nothing new in, in this for me. Like there's nothing that can fight that other than the sense of renewed awe. Like, oh my gosh. Like, this is the God that I worship. The God who shows such incredible kindness to people who are so undeserving. And that is really what would fight hardness of heart. That will fight a, a, like a, a spirit of like routine and like, eh, like, here I go to church once again. I'm not going to learn anything new and blah, 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 blah. Like there's nothing that can fight that other than the sense of awe and wonder. This is the reason why we're going through the book of Mark this summer. It's an invitation for us to see Jesus once again with fresh eyes. If we've read this book a million times, it doesn't matter. Like our prayer is that we would see Jesus once again with new eyes. Like I've never seen this about him before. I've never been struck by this aspect before. I've never realized that I was that paralytic man or I was that scribe or I was that person deserving of grace and God just simply extended his hand of mercy upon my life. Like that is what we are inviting this whole community into as we go through the book of Mark. It's an invitation that will require you to step over a national boundary line of sorts. You're stepping into a new kingdom, like from the kingdoms of this world. You're stepping into the kingdom of heaven. And there's a king that rules over this kingdom. And this kingdom looks like the king. It carries his principles, his way of seeing, his ways of feeling, his ways of valuing certain things that maybe we don't value. You're crossing a line. You're stepping into a new kingdom where there is a new ruler over your life. There's a new authority a new author over your life. And you're no longer called to be defined by your position. You're not defined by your potential or your resume or your career or your accomplishments. You're no longer defined by those things. If there's a king, there's also a kingdom. And his kingdom reflects the character and values of this king. You're weighed differently. You're seen differently. You're treasured differently. In this kingdom. Now this is what I want to end with today. It's very short today. Sometimes when we struggle with faith. We feel like. Um, we have to focus on our faith. Like. Um, let me explain it this way. Like, uh, uh, um, 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 How do I explain it? <sighs> like if we're wrestling with our faith. We feel like. Okay I just need to believe harder. 
Let's just try harder. You know, like I just need to like, like I just force myself to believe. And my, my problem is my faith. You know, I just need to focus on my faith. Like this faith is right here. I'm going to like, I don't know, grow this somehow. Or, you know, you're focused on your faith somehow. But let me encourage you with this. Sometimes it's not your faith per se that is a problem. Sometimes it's the lack of understanding of the object of your faith what your faith relies on, who you have faith in, right? So let me give you an example. Imagine I bring up a chair here and it's like really rickety and really ghetto and like you feel like you can barely sit on it or put your weight on it. And I'm like, okay, Jess, what I want you to do right now is like believe really hard, believe really hard and jump on this chair. And you're like, Oh, uh, heck no. <laughs> That's not anything I want to do, right? It's not going to last. It's going to just like cr- be crushed under me. It's not going to hold me. And I'm like, look, look, Jess, your problem is that you don't believe hard enough. That's your problem. If you believe hard enough, this chair is going to hold you um, and you'll be able to make it. Like that, that's kind of like what's happening here. But let me give you another kind of example. Imagine I present you with something solid, something that will hold your weight. Something that has been tested, tried, and true. Something that will hold your weight no matter how many times you jump on it, you step on it, you walk away from it. Like, if the object of your faith is solid, you don't require very much faith. Like, I could be like, Jess, you want to jump on this? You're like, yeah. Like, no problem. It's because of the object of our faith, not the faith itself. So as we are focusing on just how solid, just how reliant the person of Jesus Christ is just how worthy of our praise. He is how much power he has over every situation, how everything in creation bends according to his will. This is the one name that can make demons flee, can make storms cease. It can make people tremble. This is the one name that can do that. The more we understand just how solid how reliable, how trustworthy the rock of ages is, faith is not going to be a problem. So that is my encouragement for us as we're going through this um, this series. It's like, don't worry very much about your faith. Worry about the object of your faith. Fix your eyes on Jesus. There's no way for you to try harder to believe and that will fix things. The only way to get around that is to simply fix your eyes on Jesus. You fix your eyes on Jesus and you begin to realize how beautiful he is, how kind he is, how compassionate he is, how just and righteous he is, how unchanging he is in all these situations. And you begin, your faith will just begin to grow. You'll begin to trust this person. You'll begin to submit and surrender to this God. The more we realize what kind of a person, what kind of a man, what kind of a God he is. And that is our desire as we go deeper into the book of Mark.